seated for this morning's Old Testament reading from Genesis 3. It's page 3 of the Pew Bible. Genesis 3, 13 through 21. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have not eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. The man, calls his wife's, the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of the living. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Like most of Genesis, this is a foundational text of Scripture. It helps us understand the rest of the Bible. And we'll shed some light on the New Testament lesson we'll read in a bit. The fall and God meeting out his curses on rebellious humanity really explain to us what is wrong with the world. It's critical for us to understand how sin, the results of sin, are why the world is the way it is, why um, there's war, why there's hunger, why there's difficulty, why there's strife, but to also understand that we also are under God's curse and his judgment hangs over us. And so it's important for us to hear God's curse on sin. God cursing Adam and Eve and cursing creation reminds us how serious of a betrayal this was. Adam and Eve made in God's image, made in paradise, walking with God in the garden, enjoying communion with him, being raised up above all other creation as kings, leading creation in worship as priests. God speaking to them, them hearing his very words, Adam hearing God's direct commands. God has provided for them everything. And man, obeyed Satan, was fooled, 
joined sides with the prideful certain and rebelled against that God. And now we live in a world defined by this battle, this strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The rest of human history up until this point has been defined by the struggle of God and sin. And here it begins. God begins by cursing the serpent. It's just interesting how he sees, he seems specifically with the serpent to plan to humiliate him, that he will be made lower than all the other creatures. Dust will be his food. His, so his curse on the serpent is total, it's complete. There's no way back for the serpent. And this is where he describes enmity. He describes the beginning of his war with the serpent. And it's a generational war. It'll be through offspring. It will go from generation to generation until one day where there will be some kind of fight where the seed of woman will bruise his head and he will bruise the heel. God curses the woman. It seems that he frustrates the designs of creation. There's pain now in childbirth. Woman designed to bring children into the world will now experience pain as she does so. And of course, any woman here who's been in labor knows there's physical pain, but also there's the ongoing pain and anxiety of raising children in our world today. All of it. She now has cursed desires. It says her desire is for her husband, and he will rule over her. In the next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord says to Cain that he says this, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And same word. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Her desire are now cursed. The relationship between man and woman is now cursed. Instead of communion that God intended, it will be shattered. God curses man. It's fascinating. He repeats the commands he gave to Adam. God is meeting out the covenant curses. The covenant he made with Adam to protect him and provide for him and love him. He says you forfeited that when you violated this command. What God had brought him in the world to enjoy, God's generous prosperity and creation, good without pain, labor without toil, is now reversed. Obedience to God's will is now painful and difficult. This is perhaps one of the most important things we see, is God actually does not obliterate the created order. He doesn't say, no longer will you be fruitful and multiply. No longer will you work. He now says, those things will come with pain, with difficulty. And I believe there's none of us here who would disagree that obedience to God and his commands are without pain now. And ultimately, the curse God gives Adam will re result in death. God has cursed us all with death. 
Death hangs over us. And this is a good thing because God has decided to not let sin go unabated. God will put an end to sin. God will bring all of our sinful lives to end. God will bring the pain associated with sin to an end. Now, there's a lot of darkness here. It's a very heavy text. But there are certainly, in this text, the moment man sins, the moment God curses him, we already see signs of God's grace and mercy to humanity. First, God does not immediately obliterate creation. God evidently has something still in mind for creation, even after our rebellion. And we know God's purposes are always good. So he has something good in mind. You may think of your own life as you've sinned, as we've sinned like Adam. God still has something good in mind for your life. God doesn't choose to completely remove the role of creation. God could have commanded them to work and no longer provide them food. God could have given the woman pain and no children. But he still allows the created order to continue. Most of all, of course, the hope is that someday, born of woman, God's purpose for humanity, born of woman will be one who will defeat the serpent. That is the story of the Bible. The tension of the Bible is who will finally deliver us from the serpent? Who will make us back on God's side? And that hope is only encouraged when Eve is called the mother of living. She will give birth. She will give birth immediately. This is hope, the hope in life. And God still, even in sinful humanity, provides for them. He covers their shame with the cloaks made from animals. The first animals were killed to cover their shame by God. So we have hope and a promise God will fulfill. We have God's provision and the integrity of creation left. This is more than enough to praise God for. But we know as the scriptures unfold, these great promises will come true. And, as I mentioned, this is the backdrop with which we need to have to, to truly appreciate um, the New Testament reading um, that we will come to in a moment. May be seated for the New Testament reading and sermon. We will be reading Luke 1, 26 through 38, on page 855 of your Bible. Um, these verses teach us the truths of Scripture commemorated in the line of the Apostles' Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, as we continue Christ's Covenants series, preaching through the biblical truths commemorated and represented for us in the Apostles' Creed. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, 
the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of the kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and in this sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What could be better following our story of the fall with a birth announcement, something of great joy? But fools rush in where angels fear to tread. This is a famous line, actually, by a literary critic in the Middle Ages. But it reminds us that it's often the least experienced who are willing to charge ahead and offer definitive answers where the wise have often handled it with great care. I think we face that kind of danger when we come to passages like this. In the church, I think this is especially the case with the Christmas and Easter passages. We hear them every year. We've absorbed the story. We get it. And this is the kind of cavalier attitude, I believe, uh, represented by the quote, fools rush in where angels fear to dread. If you have any interest in church history, you may know that this text is full of controversy. It's got glorious truths, but sometimes they're often difficult for us to summarize. The answers here, probably, to some of these questions seem obvious to us, but they've taken 2,000 years of Christian thought and prayer. For example, ask yourself this question. Would it be better to call Mary, the virgin, Mary, the mother of God, or Mary, the mother of Christ? You don't have to answer out loud, but just think to yourself for a second. These terms were the subject of massive controversy in the 5th century of the church. This began when the bishop of Constantinople, Istanbul today, was asked if it's fitting to call Mary the mother of God. He believed it was a very difficult question, but he didn't think it was a good idea to call her that because he thought it might lead to a lot of confusion. He thought a better term to recommend to the faithful would be Mary, the mother of Christ, since God cannot have a mother. 
Mary bore the man Jesus, who was the vehicle of the divinity of the Son of God. This bishop's name was Nestorius. And if what I just said makes sense to you, that teaching was condemned as heresy many times after his life. Now, they didn't condemn it because of some kind of devotion to Mary or wanting to elevate her as we see in modern Roman Catholicism. But because as they considered this with prayer, they believed this term failed to adequately answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is the son Mary gave birth to? The child she gave birth to was God. In her womb, God was conceived. The nature of God and a human nature were joined into one person, Jesus Christ. So while it's not technically wrong to say she gave birth to the Messiah, it's not enough. And it's this kind of astounding truth we are trying to get our minds around that brings the difficulty, that leads us to the edge of what we can even explain in human language. I share this story because I hope it shows the kind of dangerous assumptions we easily jump to when we read the Bible. And we don't make assumptions about God just in matters of technical theology. We often assume how God would work, and then we read our lives and the scriptures in a way that would confirm it to us. We know what salvation is about, so we assume we know what it means to be saved. And we read the scriptures in a way that only reinforces our own ideas. We know about the virgin birth. We understand what it means that Christ is the Son of God. But this morning, this text with Mary and the angel gives us a moment to pause and not be so cavalier with such holy things. We can stop and consider why Mary was disturbed by this greeting from the angel. Maybe we can consider why the early church labored over what term to use to describe the Virgin Mary or how the human Christ was, or why God would bring his son into the world in such obscurity. The world is not the same since Christ was born. And so we will need to spend the rest of our lives re-examining our assumptions about the way the world works. Christ, his virgin birth, his death, his resurrection, radically reorient our lives to everything around us. And this morning, with the greeting of the angel to Mary, we are introduced to the new reality. If the curse introduced us to the reality of sin, this text introduces us to the new reality of grace. We learn that the Son of God, born of the Virgin, is Jesus Christ, and it's in him we can know God and must come to him. And there are three central terms by which we may come to God and know him in Christ that this text announces. First, Christ will fulfill specific promises made by God. Then, it will tell us who Jesus is. And three, how God has come to save us. The specific promises God will fulfill, who Jesus is, and how he has come to save us. First, we need to grasp the enormity of the announcement of his birth given to Mary. 
we need to understand the promises it's fulfilling. It doesn't come out of the blue, right? It's, there's millennia of context. In Christ, God is fulfilling what he's promised to his people over and over again. This is what the angel tells Mary. It should be thought of God is bringing the throne back to David's house. He's giving the kingdom to Jacob, of Jacob, which is from Genesis. God's plan is coming true. But it's coming together in a way that is altogether surprising as well. It's fascinating when we read the Gospels and see how many clear promises God made about the Messiah that nobody seems to understand how they could be coming true in Jesus. This is because they assumed they knew what God's agenda for the Messiah would be. This is why Christ had to spend so much time redefining and correcting the Jews' understanding of the Messiah. They had many messianic hopes, and the truth is Jesus did not fulfill them because those hopes they had for Jesus were not grounded in God's promise. Their hopes for a political Messiah to overthrow Rome were not rooted in what God's promise ultimately was. And we have the same problems today. We assume we know God's agenda, but it's often not rooted in what God has promised in his word. It's rooted in conclusions we've come to by our own common sense, by our own desires, what we think is best. And so we must read carefully what promises Christ has come to fulfill. And God gives Mary three signs as to what he is doing in the person, Jesus Christ. First, the first sign given to Mary is Elizabeth's pregnancy. Our text begins saying, in the sixth month. The sixth month of what? Of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which has already happened. She is pregnant with John the Baptist. It's very fascinating, if you read the early chapters of Luke, how much time he spends talking about John's birth, who John will be, um, what kind of ministry John has, how popular he is, his opponents. His, he gets almost as much time as Jesus in the early chapters of Luke. He certainly builds up John. John has a miraculous birth. He says John will be called great. Even the same angel Gabriel comes to tell Zechariah of his birth. And the people fear when, they, when he's born. Jesus, of course, later will refer to John as the greatest man born of woman. This is a sign as to who Christ is. In verse 36, when after Mary's asked, how can this be, for I'm a virgin, the angel Gabriel provides Elizabeth's birth as a sign to her. He says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. That Mary can believe in the miraculous birth that she will have? Look to John. Look what God has already done for Elizabeth. And why? Because John is a sign as to what God is doing. Um, this is why when John's birth is foretold to Zechariah in Luke 1, 16 and 17... Our text, Luke, describes his ministry this way. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and though disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
John's ministry to prepare the people for the coming of Christ begins even before he's born. He has the ministry of the awaited Elijah who will announce that the Messiah is here now. And so the first sign of who Christ is, is the birth of John. Because if that Elijah is now born, it means it's time for the Messiah to come. The messianic promises are being fulfilled. The next sign of what God is doing, then, is the centrality of women and their miraculous births. Again, a thing this Bible is full of, stories of women and miraculous births. Think about how God opened the womb of Sarah, Abraham's husband, I mean Abraham's wife, sorry, in her 90s. Think about Rebecca or Leah, the stories of God opening and closing their wombs. Or Hannah, who was barren, praying for a son and being given Samuel. All of these are indications of God doing something great in their time. But most of all, we should think back to Genesis 3, which we read. And the curse of, on the serpent. That the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. The ultimate promise of redemption. The ultimate promise that God will make war and win against the one who brought the fallen sin in the world. And generation and generation of Jewish women wondered, who is the son who will crush the head of the serpent? Certainly Eve wondered when she gave birth. If you read Genesis, the thing you would assume is, my son will be the one who makes war on the serpent. And what does her firstborn son do? He murders her other son. Instead, he too sides with the serpent. Perhaps, as things get out of control in Genesis, we see God say, I will start over with Noah. Perhaps he is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Or maybe Abraham's promised son, in whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And not Ishmael, though, Isaac. Maybe one of the judges, maybe like Samson, or perhaps even the great King David. But no, all of these men like Adam before them succumb to the curse of sin. They all die. They all fall to temptation and sin like Adam. So, with this miraculous birth, one who can only be called the seed of the woman, we have the promise of the curse being reversed. The fall is being reversed. Instead of falling to the temptation of the evil one, he will cast out demons. The miraculous birth in this case is like one that has never happened, and it is the shot sign God is working to save his people again. And so this miracle exceeds all that have come before for the seeds of women. And the final sign, of course, of what God is doing is the presence of an angelic messenger. Of course, the angel's primary calling is to worship God in heaven. But they're also his messengers throughout scripture. They announce, they raise up God's redeemers. There are also places where God sends them to execute his judgment. And thus it's no surprise that Mary, like all who see his holy messengers, is afraid. No one in the right mind would dare to interact with a being from God's presence in a cavalier way. 
when the holiness and glory of God are brought upon us, we cannot help but fear. But the angel Gabriel is even more specific. He's only one of two named angels in the entire scriptures. His name means the strength of God. Now, he's already appeared in the Gospel of Luke, as I mentioned, to announce John's birth. But that isn't his first appearance in the Bible. Gabriel is first sent to the prophet Daniel. In chapter 8 and chapter 9 of his book, Daniel has two conversations with Gabriel. And he has them following two, as you may agree with Daniel, very difficult to understand apocalyptic visions. And so I will read from Daniel 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 15, um, to see how Gabriel is introduced to Daniel. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that that vision is for the time of the end. It's interesting, there is one who looks like a man, and he sends the angel. The angel isn't the one who looks like the man in the heavenly court. But just like Mary, Daniel is terrified in the presence of Gabriel. And he comes with a very similar ministry, actually. He comes to interpret God's works that are beyond his understanding. He arrives to explain a vision of the rising and falling of kingdoms. And Gabriel comes to Mary to interpret the works of God beyond her comprehension, that she, a virgin, will give birth to a son. Certainly a harder-to-understand concept than nations rising and falling, even great ones. She will give birth to a son, and just like what Daniel saw, it will be about the kingdoms of the earth. This birth of this son will have implications for all the kingdoms of the earth. And so these are the three signs as to what God is beginning to fulfill in Christ. John's birth, that Jesus is the Messiah, the pregnancy of women, God is saving his people, and the presence of Gabriel, all point to the ultimate sign of God's presence and favor in Christ. Next, we should see the, Gabriel, the message Gabriel actually brings to Mary, and it has two parts. First, he comes to tell her who her son will be. And he begins, I don't know, what verse is this? Uh, in verse 30, he begins uh, his message to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. She will have a son named Jesus. Of course, the name, personal name Jesus means the Lord saves. His whole person will be tied up in the saving work of God. He will be great. He'll be the son of the Most High. The term Most High was a common way Jews referred to God because they often avoided using his proper name. This is the astounding 
truly astounding news of the passage. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, will join himself to a human nature in the person of Christ. And even though he will be formed in the womb of this woman, everything true about God is true about him. So if we can say God is the creator, eternal, infinite, all-loving, all-powerful, we can say Jesus is the creator, eternal, infinite, all-loving, and all-powerful. This is the greatness of Jesus. And the church has never tired of finding new ways to communicate wonder at who was born of Mary. Let me share you a few examples that I came across this week because they are just, just so good. Mary conceived in her womb the creator of all things. She is truly a mother but a virgin. And the son, whose flesh was truly hers, is the eternal son of God. Because here, the timeless one enters time. The Holy Spirit in her womb begins the work of the new creation. And here's my favorite one. Mary heard this news fearing the angels, but from her womb would be born the one who all the angels fear and ceaselessly worship. The eternal Son of God took on all that it is to be human, to become a king. That's what Gabriel says, to take the throne. And this is why so many oppose and reject him today, because he was born to sit on the throne of David. And you know what the problem with that was? That throne wasn't empty. It wasn't waiting for him. There was a king of the Jews named Herod. And above him, as a puppet leader, there was the Roman Empire and the emperor of the whole world. And this is why these rulers opposed Christ, because he had a claim to be king. Everyone is comfortable with a God who's out there somewhere. But a God that enters the world and a God who has his own purpose for history and your life, a God who comes to take the throne and speaks commands that we must obey, this is a God the sinner will not accept. Naturally, we don't want anyone to have this kind of say over our lives. And thus, it's no surprise that when Christ the King is born, the powers of this world had no interest in him, except to oppose him. Because they want God on their own terms. A distant God. One they can manipulate with sacrifices and superstition. A God that will just bless the status quo. Who will just bless me and whatever I'm already doing. This is why Paul says preaching Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But his birth and who he is shows that he does have this authority and has the authority of salvation for all who believe. Finally, we come to the other part of Gabriel's message, and this is how the Son of God, born of Mary, will save his people. This comes as an answer to Mary's very understandable question, how will this be? Mary could not conceive of what God was about to do. What would it look like 
for God to give Christ the throne of David? What would it look like for the Messiah to come and begin to reverse the fall? What would it look like for the beginning of a kingdom that will have no end? The answer is, again, surprising. An angel leaves the glorious presence of God to speak to a young woman in a town of no good reputation in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. This is a very Melrose Mindoro kind of place. You had to be from there to know where it was. If you live in Melrose Mindoro, there's no shade on it. God went to a place just like that to speak to Mary. No, there was no angel sent to the emperor in Rome. There was no angel sent to the leaders in Jerusalem. He comes here. Here's where God chooses to begin his final movement of redemption. Unnoticed by the great ones of the world. And likely an embarrassment to everyone who actually did know Mary. This, of course, is why Joseph, before he understood the miracle, was planning to divorce her. This would bring shame on her and him. God's works do not fit our agenda. We are in danger of dismissing God's greatest works because they come without any external glory. God's greatest work of redemption begins with a woman who everyone would have assumed to be immoral. Perhaps it should be no surprise for us the attack the doctrine of the virgin birth has undergone throughout the last hundred years. There are those who don't believe it should have any part of the central teaching of the Christian faith because it would never appeal to rational people. Let it just be something pious people told themselves long ago. Because we think we have great things in mind and great ways God would show his power. But that is not how God has chosen to work. God has chosen to work without external glory. And God works that way today through teaching words, through speech, through simple signs like baptism, through bread and wine. God's kingdom, this kingdom without end, is advanced when children pray. And how are you to serve this great God on a, on a great work to reverse the curse of all things? Be faithful in your daily responsibilities of marriage and work and parenting in your community. This is the higher life because this is how God works, veiled in weakness. God shows this kind of power here in the virgin birth. And God's power is the explanation of the conception of Jesus. It's all God's initiative and all God's power. Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He does not explain exactly how the Holy Spirit will bring this about, but that it will be his creative power and the shadowing of God the Most High. There she will conceive. It's the result of completely divine action and nothing human. And therefore, we should not think Mary possessed in herself some kind of merit to receive this. No doubt, as we see in all the accounts of Mary in the Gospels, she did live an obedient and life of faith to God. But God's saving work was not because of her initiative. God was not waiting for a woman like Mary. 
God was not waiting for worthy people to begin saving us. The angel tells her more than once, you have found favor. This is the same word as grace. Mary, you have found grace. You have found unmerited love and love from God. It's a gift. And it's by the Spirit's action Jesus will be called holy in the Son of God. We know Jesus was born just like us in every way except one. He had no sin. And we often wonder, how could this be? What kept Jesus from inheriting sin? Is it because just men pass sin on genetically and people speculate about this? But we shouldn't because verse 35 directly tells us why Christ's humanity was without the effects of sin and had no sin nature. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. The angel, angel answers this question directly, clearly. The work of the Holy Spirit is why Jesus Christ was holy without sin. It's not something about Mary. It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and not hers. And likewise, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit and her being a virgin with Christ having no earthly father is a great testimony to him being the Son of God. And holiness, since the fall, is what humanity needed return to it, since every part of us was damaged and stained by sin. God is working in the womb of the virgin, a salvation that is impossible for man. God's boundless power is revealed here. If he can make a virgin pregnant, he can save you. If he can raise Christ from the dead, he can forgive your mountain of sins. If Christ can ascend into heaven, he can give you everlasting life. No matter what. And Mary, then, does serve, though, as an example for us in what we are to do when we see God's will and glory revealed. Yes, we often make assumptions. Yes, we often don't want to submit to God's will. Our hopes, yes, do not often align with God's promises. But by God's Spirit, let us learn to say with Mary, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. Mary proclaims her complete submission to God's will and her faith that he will bring it out. She doesn't demand a certain way God must work, but commits herself to whatever he would do. She doesn't understand everything in God's will, but chooses to submit to whatever it is. And she accepts this calling that no doubt would have come with great difficulty, criticism, and pain. But by faith, she places herself completely at God's disposal. And God, because God has promised her unsurpassed favor, she gave birth to the one who was called holy. Because God became man in Christ through the virgin birth, no part of our salvation is from man. Salvation is a complete divine act, and we must receive it as his servants. God announced this miracle through signs so that we would know without question that Mary was the mother of God. Nestorius was uncomfortable with that kind of language, but this is how God has seen fit to work. His term, Christ-bearer, wasn't technically wrong, 
but it doesn't make the fundamental Christian confession about Jesus. He is God come down to save us. The baby growing inside Mary was God. He had an umbilical cord. He was holy, but he still possessed everything that makes you a human, a mind, a body, a soul, because he came to redeem all parts broken by sin, which is everything. And God was in the flesh and could bleed and did bleed. He died for your sins. This is the ultimate demonstration of God's power and weakness, starting with his birth. God saved, veiled in death. And the fact that it went unnoticed and seemed insignificant only shows how much power God has. Because by that act, with complete weakness, complete disgrace, God overcame the world and saved us from our sins. And so to him be the glory. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that you've drawn near to us in him. That the infinite God took on the form of a servant. So we praise him as exalted above every name. We praise him as the one with all authority. We bow to his authority. Lord, let us from the heart say, let it be to me according to your word. So grant us your promises and give us lives according to what you command. To the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Join with me as we sing a hymn to prepare ourselves for